Hello and welcome to season two of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I can't even believe I'm saying season two. When I started this podcast a year ago, I wasn't sure what the Lord had planned, but here we are, episode number 35. I'm thrilled I get to share another season with you, sharing the stories of women whose stories I know will encourage and inspire you. I do want to tell you, though, that some of the stories I have planned for season two might stretch your comfort zone. Remember, the theme for season two is courage over comfort, and that doesn't mean the courage is just for the women sharing their stories. It also means the courage to listen to stories that might not look like yours. Stories are powerful, ladies, but some stories are harder to hear. I truly believe that there's nothing more powerful to ignite compassion and love for our neighbor than sharing and knowing each other's stories. So for today's episode, I'm thrilled to introduce you to my guest, Karen Gonzalez. Karen is a writer and speaker and an immigrant advocate. Karen has a passion for seeing and loving her neighbor as God does and encouraging others to do the same. Listen as Karen shares her own personal immigrant story of seeking safety in another land and how she encountered Christ along the way. Karen, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I just so appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, before we dig into your story, I just want to say finished up your book. I had read most of it, finished it up last night, and your book is truly, I've read a lot of books this last year for podcasts, preparing. I really think yours is like one of, is the most impactful one that I've read. I mean, I feel like everybody, I told my daughter, I have a 16, I'm like, you're going to read this book. Like, it's just, (laughs) it just so is not the side of things that we hear on the news about immigrants and what the Bible says and a personal story. I think that's it. Hearing your story and those of others, um, it just totally changes your paradigm and opens your heart up more. So thank you for writing it. And we'll share what it's about as we get into your story. But I just wanted to thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. That's a really high compliment. I really appreciate it. Well, absolutely. So like I just said, you're an author. The name of your book is The God Who Sees. Um, It's about immigrants, the Bible, and the journey to belong. And you yourself, um, that's what you'll tell us today. You're just your story of um, being an immigrant to the United States, where you came from, your family, all of that. So what else can you tell us? Just introduce a little bit more of yourself before we go into your story, where you live, your family, all of that. Yes, I love to do that. So I live in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm not from Maryland, but this is where I live because this is where I work and this is where my community is. And like you said, I'm a writer. I'm also an immigration advocate and I'm also an HR professional. And so that's my day job, you know, that, um, that I do. I'm an HR director at World Relief, which is, um, the organization I talk about in my book that, uh, works with immigrants and refugees, um, here in the U S. Okay. So apart from that, I am also really involved in my church community, do a lot of preaching and teaching there. Um, I'm also, you know, involved in a variety of things right, around right. the city. So Right. And your yeah. book just came out three months ago. Is that right? Yes. Three okay, months ago. So, yeah. So promoting that. And we will put the link at the end of, uh, or in the show notes, where they can find your book. Because um, like I said, I just recommend it for everyone, um, especially in this day and age with the border crisis and all the rumors and things that we hear. Um, and the other link that, like you mentioned, World Relief, who you work for, I was on their website this morning and there is so much information on that website that just about Q and A's and stories. So that is a link that we'll link, we'll also put on the show notes because I encourage people to go there to get information as well. Yes. Okay. So if you don't mind, let's just go ahead and go back, start with your story and where you were born, a little bit about your childhood there, and then um, we'll go along and get to how, how you ended up in the United States. Sure. So I was born in Guatemala, um, in Guatemala City, and that's where my parents are from. And I was born there. And my parents, I would say we had a really good life there. You know, my parents were educated, so they had good jobs. And I had a really nice middle class life. In fact, I always tell people that I wish people would ask me more about life in Guatemala because I think there's a narrative that we have bought into that there's nothing but poverty and tragedy in many developing countries. When in fact, 
there's so much more. There's so much goodness. You know, God is present everywhere and God is present in these countries as well. And so Guatemala is a really beautiful country. It's mountainous. It, you know, we grow coffee. We have a Caribbean coast where we grow bananas. And so I really had a wonderful childhood in Guatemala until I became aware of the Civil War. And I tell the story of the, in the book of how I became aware of that. And it's because, you know, my brother and I and some friends were playing in our neighborhood and we just kind of wandered away as kids often do, kind of pushing boundaries of, of what you're supposed to do. And we went over a few blocks I mean, only a few blocks from our home and we ended up, you know, sort of going into this embankment near this little stream and we found a dead body and it was a man whose body had been dumped there and who had now I recognize had been tortured. He had these marks all over his body and it really, you know, terrified us. And this was one of several incidents that occurred um, around this time. And I was about maybe eight seven or eight years old at the Mm -hmm. time. And of course, because I had been someplace that I wasn't supposed to be, I didn't want to get in trouble. And I was too young to understand that my parents would not have cared. They would have wanted to talk to me about what I saw. But I was too afraid to tell them because I thought, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. And so I didn't tell them and neither did my brother. And so there were several incidents like this. And, and one of the reasons I don't go into more detail about that in the book is that I don't want people to care about me as an immigrant because of great suffering or tragedy in my life. I want people to care because we have a shared humanity mm, uh, yes. with all immigrants. Immigrants are our neighbors, they're image bearers of God. And so I want people to recognize that, but I did want people to know that there was a reality of war and conflict in our country. And that became for us a push factor. So we were not really drawn to living in America. We had relatives who lived in the U S and they'd been telling us for years that we should move. And my parents were quite happy to stay in Guatemala we felt pushed out by this war because it destabilized the economy completely. Um, And of course, one of the tragedies of it is that the war was funded by the U.S. Basically, the U.S. didn't want communism spreading anywhere, anywhere near its own borders after the Cuban revolution. And because of that, they funded repressive governments to keep the socialist activists at bay. And the way these governments did this is by repression and violence against people of their own country. And so, yeah, and you share that in your book, and it's a really mm -hmm. powerful point in your book because you talk about that the civil war that was going on there from 1960 to 1996 but then you talk about how you find out about that when you're living in america ronald reagan's president everybody thinks he's so great and you find out like they're funding that war that in our country so that's just a really powerful point and i think something it's just a big part of your story i think mm-hmm. yeah for sure mm-hmm. and yeah it was very hard to find that out as a teenager. And I tried my own little form of protest around that. And so this is what (laughs) pushed my family uh, to move. And at the time, because we'd had no interest in migrating to the U.S., there was no reason to pursue a visa, but we'd visited in the past. So we had a tourist visa. So we arrived on a tourist visa and my dad actually left about a year before we did. Okay. So initially, my siblings and I were super excited. We're going to get to see our dad again, who we'd only heard from in letters. And so it'd been a year since we'd seen him, and we were excited to be reunited. And we were. But then sort of the joy of that quickly turned into concern for, oh, now there's five of us, and all five of us are undocumented because- You know, if we're going to overstay our visa, we're going to be without documents in the U.S. And so, so you came. You came in eight, 1981, correct? correct? How old? How old were you when you came? I was nine. Nine. Okay. I and was nine. and you went to Rhode Island, and your grandma lived there. Is that right? Yeah, my grandma okay. and some of my so my grandma on my dad's side, and also some of his brothers and sisters live there. Okay. And so that's why. Okay, so you're in this kind of a smaller, you're small state, and you're all undocumented. So then fear starts of like, is this going to work or what's going to happen? So tell us just a little bit about that period, and then what happened next. Sure. So my parents 
we're pretty content to stay in Rhode Island, even though it was a drastic change of climate, you know, it was November, so it was pretty cold. <laughs> but Rhode Island's a really small state, like you said, and because of that, the communities live in strategic sort of areas um, within the cities there. And so my parents were really afraid that they might be picked up in an immigration raid, that something could happen. And my mom's family uh, were also migrants to the U.S. They lived in California and Los Angeles. And so my parents reasoned, well, Los Angeles is a big, huge city with a big Mexican and Central American population. That's going to be an easier place for us to be lost and unnoticed. Right. And so they made the decision. And so right after Christmas, right after the new year, we, um, moved across country and we didn't have a car. So we took a Greyhound bus from Rhode Island all the way to LA. And that's where we lived the first um, four years that we were in the U.S. Mm, and it was not easy at all. I mean, we have this image like, you know, immigrants come and they live in America, the land of opportunity, but it was not an easy life for you or an adjustment for your parents. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Like what was life like for you and your family living in LA? Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things, you know, when you do something new and initially it's so exciting and you're, you're so, you're so like enthralled with the novelty and the new experiences, but then quickly normal life settles in, right? And you're just going to school or going to work. And that's kind of what happened. And my grandma and uncle, because it was, they were also undocumented they lived in urban Los Angeles and was not a very safe neighborhood. So we went from having this really great carefree kind of childhood in Guatemala to all of a sudden we're in home all the time and we're alone all the time. So every adult, my family is always working because that's part of the immigrant life is this no Sabbath kind of working all the time to survive and so my brother and sister and I are just spending a lot of time by ourselves. And at the time, you know, I didn't recognize how lonely it was for my parents too, because they went from having these wonderful, lively communities where they worked. My mom was a nurse and my dad worked for a humanitarian development agency. And all of a sudden they're working by themselves. My mom yeah. was like a home health aide and my dad could only get custodial work because, of course, none of his education transferred. Mm. And so he's like picking up garbage with a stick at a hotel. That was his first task of the day and doing just regular maintenance work. And now I recognized how difficult and how humbling it must have been for them to be professionals and all of a sudden not be. Right. And not speaking English, just not, mm -hmm. I mean, feeling like you, the police could, you know, there could be a raid at any time. I mean, the fear, all of that. And you talk, you share about that in your book um, and just the loneliness, like that just made my heart so sad for your family and you, but just that's how, how just immigrants must feel and not, um, not belonging here or not belonging in your country. I just can't imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you also, you share about two and that's why I love your book. Like you just, these stories just put such a, I don't know, just a reality on like what really happens. Cause you also share about like the safety and the crime against immigrants. Um, mm -hmm. And like in your family within the first, I think you said first two years that every adult in your family there had a crime committed against them. Yes. So share a little bit about that. Maybe what happened to your mom, if you don't mind. And like sure. why that is so common. Yeah. And so Every adult in my family, like you said, uh, was a victim of a crime because the real story of immigrants and crime is that immigrants are more vulnerable to being victims of crimes. And, and that largely has to do with the situation that my family had. We're undocumented. We don't speak the language or know the culture. We don't know the laws of this land versus the laws of our land. We came from a country where there was a lot of police corruption mm -hmm. and you couldn't always trust the police. And so automatically, right, you transfer that to the new country where you've arrived, where you haven't learned these things yet. And all of a sudden, police here seem scary too, right? Right. And so all of those factors contribute to that. And so what happened with my mom is uh, we... We had just arrived in Los Angeles. We'd only been there a couple of months, and she had been meeting with different 
people that she had known in Guatemala that um, now lived in Los Angeles and through different connections that my grandmother had and my uncle had. And so she went one evening to meet with someone who um, she had hoped to had some connections to a possible job opportunity for her. And she returned kind of late, um, not super late, but it was dark, you know, it was like seven, eight o'clock at night. And she noticed people, you know, she noticed these two men following her and she was really afraid. And um, she started walking faster because she had taken, of course, buses to go meet with the person uh, she'd been meeting with. And, and then they overtook her and they tried to take her purse, but she fought really hard for it because it was, you know, everything that she had was in that purse, all the money that she had. And so they um, had a gun, but apparently was not loaded. And so they just uh, hit her with it several times. And then uh, what happened was there was a uh, an FBI person who was, you know, off duty and he saw what was happening on the side of the road and he pulled his car over because this was happening on a street, you know, in, in, you know, South Los Angeles. So he pulled over and the men got scared away. And then, you know, he called, you know, 911 and an ambulance came and took her. And so of course she was really afraid police came and she's thinking, Oh, police are, corrupt. I can't trust them. She's undocumented. So now she's like, oh no, now I've did exactly what I did not want to do. I've called attention to myself through this incident. And now all these people are giving me attention. And what does that mean, you know, in terms of my status? And so they took her to the hospital. She told the police, no, 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 I don't, you know, she pretended that she, she couldn't understand them and she couldn't communicate just so that they would go away. And she ended up getting treatment at the hospital. So we came from Guatemala where there was like socialized medicine. And so if you went to the doctor, even if there was a fee, it was a very small fee. And all of a sudden they get a bill in the mail and it's like $700. Mm. And it was so much money. And they were so shocked because it was only like four or five stitches, you know, on, on her forehead. And now they have this huge bill to take care of. And so this is what often happens in immigrant communities you have uh our neighbors get attacked because people know one they won't call the police people also know that they frequently carry cash because it's very difficult to open a bank account without proper documents and so this makes them targets for yeah. people who who seek to take advantage of others vulnerabilities and so research supports that you know, and even though that happened in the 80s, that is still common today, correct? That is, is still that, common yeah. today. As a yeah. matter of fact, we have a, um, an immigration legal services office here in our building in Baltimore. And this is a story I heard over and over and over again. And in fact, there's a visa for immigrants that are victims of crime who cooperate with the police and with the district attorney's office. That's how common it is that, that we have established a visa for people in order to encourage them to wow. cooperate with the authorities and prosecute the people who are harming them. Yeah. It's wow. called a U visa and you can look it up on yeah, that's Google. It. It's really incredible. So that is something if your mom known about at that time and it had been in the, in, um, Oh, it's something that existed at that time. She could have applied for. Yeah. She okay. could have applied for it because she'd suffered, you know, actual, um, okay. Harm. Even, even though she was okay. undocumented. Even though she was okay, that's good. Good. Yeah, so, and it's a great yeah. visa that leads toward a, a path to citizenship too. Okay, mm -hmm. so we are making a few steps. <laughs> yeah, okay. steps here and there. Oh yeah, a few steps forward and a few steps back. I um, so going with that story, and this is kind of a hard question for me to ask, but I'm sure people are wondering, like, what? Because there are so many people that think, no, this is a black and white issue, and they weren't documented. So, what would you say to people that said, well, they should have been documented? I mean, sure, that would ask that. Tell I think that's yeah. a great question. It's a great question. And it's one that I get asked a lot. And okay. for one, I want to, um, I want to encourage people to just sit with the idea that my family never wanted to migrate and most families don't. Yeah. We prefer to live in our own countries where we know the system and the language and it's our people and we're not marginalized in any way. We were pushed out by a war the United States funded. Mm. 
And if you think that's just Guatemala, consider that it also happened in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, in Argentina, in Chile, in uh, Iran, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, all these places where uh, the U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. military has engaged in conflicts and created displaced people. And this is something that happens so much. And it's a reality that we as Christians and we as Americans have to reckon with, that we bear some responsibility for this. So that's one thing I would encourage people to just interrogate and sit with. The other thing is that, yes, you know, we were undocumented. Um, We were fortunate that our my dad's brother, my uncle, had just become a U.S. citizen. He's, he was married to um, a U.S. citizen. And so he had filed for an immigrant visa for us, but we, were, we had to wait for it. Yes. So, so if you have a relative uh, in, a, in a relationship that qualifies under the law, they can actually file a petition for you, which is what my uncle did. But you still have to wait your, your turn in line. Yes. At that time, the line was only two and a half years, but... Now, the, yeah. that same line is about 13 years. Yeah, I wrote that in my notes. That's incredible. Um, yeah. The, the, the different, how the process is that long now. So what you're talking about is called family-based immigration. So you knew that that um, was going to happen. They just, if you were going to follow what the what they say you should do what you would have had to just live back in Guatemala for those two and a half years is right that, okay and yeah we would or have today. to live in Guatemala okay. and then go to our interview there in the American embassy um and we just couldn't do that right. because you're not um, feeling safe there so right there's work that. there's war it's like asking people in Syria you know you've seen the pictures of Syria with the right. buildings bombed out and to ask people to sit there and wait yeah. I mean, and that's, that's what I think people need to know. Like, that is yeah. why I'm just like, everybody needs to read this book. Cause we, you don't know these facts and the inside of it. If you, all you're doing is watching the news mm-hmm. and it is so not a black and white issue. So had that been your family today, you would have been told, go back to Guatemala for about 13 years. And then we'll, we'll get to you and interview you there and see if you can come. Like that's, yeah, we'll get to you eventually. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that, that wasn't a possibility for us for even oh, those wow. two and a half years. But the other thing I want to encourage people to think about when they say, well, you're undocumented, is to consider that our laws are not God's laws. We live in a constitutional republic here in the United States. Our laws change all the time. Yeah. And it is absolutely possible and feasible and practical for us to enter into immigration policy reform in order for to accomplish two things really one is to care about our neighbors in need but two to to address our own labor needs here in our country you know we have an aging population if it were not for immigrants, we would be at negative population growth. We don't have enough replacement workers for people as they retire. So immigrants actually, you know, they come here in their prime working ages. And they want to work and they want a job. Yes, they, they, they don't want to just rest on the United States social welfare system. They want yes, to work. Because yeah. we're not eligible for public benefits, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. fact. Yep. And so, you know, I've read statistics from the National Immigration Forum that immigrants are, are 13% of the U.S. population, but they're 16% of the U.S. workforce. Wow, interesting. So they make up a greater portion of that, and that's because of that. And so, yeah. so it is absolutely possible for us to change our laws. In fact, I know many, many Christians who are deeply bothered by the fact that abortion is legal. Yes. And because of that, they are working toward changing that law. And just like we can change that law, we have the capability to change our immigration laws as well. And that's what I love. I mean, your book, you're so clear on that and um, give some action steps at the end. And I've seen it on your Facebook page too, because I think we think as Christians, like, oh, that's just a big political government issue. And it's so not. I mean, that your book talks about the immigrants throughout the Bible. Jesus was an immigrant. I mean, the immigrants, refugees, all of that. And that your book is so encouraging to like, we as Christians need to make steps in this and to have a voice and to start fighting for our neighbors. Um, yeah. And so I do want to, we'll talk more about that the, at the end because I want to 
just go in a little bit more of like, what is the responsibility of the church and what are some things that we can do? But Mm -hmm. first of all, we need, we need to care and realize we can make a difference and we are called to with this. Um, so, so I got you off track from your story a little bit. So let's go back. (laughs) Let's, let's circle back around, but, um, I, I, yeah, we'll talk more about this part of it, but let's circle back around. Um, we were talking about living in LA and just how, what a hard life that was um, for you. But you also, at that same time in your life, you were introduced to church um, yes. through your grandmother. And kind of, you, it sounds like you deepened your relationship with the Lord. Can you share just about that time in your life and how the Lord started working in your life? Yes. Yeah, so one of the really beautiful things about my immigration journey is that it also sort of mirrors my spiritual journey as well. They kind of go hand in hand together. And I think, uh, you know, of course, God could have revealed God's self to me any number of ways if I lived in Guatemala, but it just so happened that I was not in Guatemala. I was in Los Angeles and my grandma was a very zealous Christian. She was very much on fire uh, for Jesus. And so from the time that I arrived, she took me to church with her and she actually spoke English well. My grandma's um, parents were um, descendants of people from Barbados, which is an island in the Caribbean. And so they spoke English well. They had migrated to Guatemala after the sugarcane industry collapse in Barbados. So they spoke English well. They taught my grandma English. She didn't teach her own kids, sadly, but she spoke English well with a Caribbean accent. And so she went to an African-American church in Los Angeles, and it was all in English. And I would go with her, and I did not understand a lot of things that were going on. But I had moments of clarity, moments of understanding. And part of what she revealed to me is what faith could look like. I'd been part of the Catholic Church in Guatemala, and Latin American Catholicism is very different from American. And a lot of what was going on, I didn't really know or understand, but I felt very drawn to God. And so I'd been a part of the Catholic Church in, you know, in my parish. And when I came to LA, all of a sudden I was introduced to a faith that looks so different, where people talked to God like God was a friend, and where there was like lively singing and even like dancing in the aisles during worship, where there was like this passionate preaching from the pulpit and the and the preacher walked around and asked questions and people responded you know so it was all very exciting to me and and of course I love spending time with her too she was like sort of my anchor to the familiar in the U.S. because she was my grandma and I knew her and remembered her and so it was so great to be able to share that experience with her. And so I share in the book about uh, making a decision to follow Jesus and about learning to, to pray and how my grandma was central to that, even though she was not an educated person. I think she went to school through like the sixth grade. Um, you know, she was poor and she was undocumented, but she was my spiritual mother. And in fact, she was a spiritual mother of our family and yeah. In that sense, she had a, a, a PhD in... <laughs> well, you share, I can't remember the term, but it was like a theology, like the grandma yeah. theology, like that that's yeah. kind of common in your home in the community because the grandmas were such powerful, influential um, in spreading and teaching about religion to families. So that's really yes. cool. That's yeah, so cool. we call it abuelita theology because most yes. of us learn about faith from our grandmothers. Aww, yeah, that's that's really cool. So that's one positive with you being in the United States. Your faith was starting to get real and deepen, and you were exposed to um, just a relationship with the Lord. You also share about though the longer you were in America, and um, you kind of like there's a little bit of division that started between you and your parents as far as. You're starting to get tied to the American culture um, and more separate from your parents. I'm not, I don't know if I'm, if I'm saying exactly mm-hmm. how, you, how you relate it in the book, but talk just a little bit about that um, because that's sure. something we kind of don't think about that that could start within families. Yeah. So part of what happens, and this is often something that people also don't think about, you know, every time that I see an immigrant family that comes down to the clinic, our legal clinic here in Baltimore, I always think about that with them because the parents are raising their kids here. I hear the kids talking to the parents in English and the parents respond in Spanish because of course the kids are going to school in English and that becomes their dominant 
heart language. But for the parents, it's still Spanish. And I'm like, man, it makes me sad because I know that they're being sort of divided. Their family's being divided by language and culture. And that's really what happened to me as well. I... There are aspects of American culture that I really love. Like I've always been like a really strong, willful person. Mm-hmm. And I loved how egalitarian American culture was. <laughs> I laughed when you said that. I'm like, <laughs> that's so funny you say that because we I think I shared with you, hey, we had a um, girl from Juarez stay with our family this summer um, before she went to college. And that's what she said. Like, that's the biggest thing she's noticed. She's like like the kids have so much of a say and like what happens like it goes on and I'm like, well, yeah. And she's like, Oh no, it's not like that back. So yeah, that's obviously um, a big, a big thing here, but you like that, that part of the American. I like that. And quite frankly, I think it's a very good thing because kids are people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so what they, I mean, I'm not saying that they should rule the entire home, but they should be able to speak into decisions and they should be able to talk about what they think. And I think that's a really good thing. And I love that about American culture. I love that things were so often democratic. You know, there's all these ways, these subtle ways that you, this kind of absorbs into you when you live in the United States, like in class where you would vote, do you want Reese's now? Or do you want Reese's <laughs> yes. later? You know, yes. it's democratic, right? Yeah. And you get to have a, have a voice in that. And I love that about American culture. I, I love the egalitarianism between men and women as well. Yeah. And I, of course, I know patriarchy exists everywhere, but, but it's, but compared I noticed, to what yeah, compared to what I knew, yes, yeah, yes. compared to what I knew. In fact, my sister just came back from Guatemala, and you know she she's married to an American man, and she said people there just marvel because her husband was so interested in cooking, and he watched <laughs> dishes and helped clean up, and our friends and relatives there said to her. We've never seen a man do that. (laughs) That's so funny. And to him, it's just a normal part of life. And so I was so drawn to these things and loved them and got to experience them in school. But when I came home, the script flipped completely. Mm -hmm. It was very authoritarian. It was very much children do what their parents say. And I didn't like that. So I started pushing back against it because, of course, now I had a frame of reference for something different. And yeah. I learned from other kids how they talked to their parents and negotiated things. I went to their houses and saw. And so so I began pushing back. And of course, this created a lot of conflict with my parents. Yes. And, and so division started a little bit. Yeah. Tension. Yeah. So, yeah. So there was tension over sort of the culture. But also, I started to realized that I couldn't communicate with them very well. And I don't know that it's something that I actively realized, but I knew it, that I didn't have the vocabulary sometimes to communicate well with them. And I speak Spanish fluently. You know, I Mm -hmm. was in the fourth grade, (laughs) you know, when I moved to the United States, but I don't speak Spanish that an educated person does. And so I there were times I'd be talking to my parents and I would just say a word in English or I'd just be like, you just don't understand. You don't understand. And I don't know how to tell you this. And so in many ways, our home was run like we were still in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And if we'd been there, it would have been fine because that would have been everyone's experience and I would know nothing else. And so that became to me kind of a sadness because... Yeah. I knew that I didn't have the same kind of relationship to my parents that I saw many of my peers had with theirs because we were so separated by this huge chasm between us of language and culture. And I was gradually becoming more and more American in right. my thinking. And and this was really hard for my parents too. It was sad for them to well, see and that. Well, you, you share that they had intentions all along. They would say, and you knew that we're not staying here. Like we want to go back to Guatemala. So they could have also been holding on to like, no, this is not permanent. Um, right. Obviously that changed with them um, mm-hmm. and not what happened, but that had to be such a hard place that they were in too. Um, and just huh, wanting the best for you and hoping this wasn't permanent for them. So why, why did that change that they decided that they weren't going back to Guatemala. They understood they were staying here. Well, partially the war didn't get any better. So we became documented. And so we went to the American embassy in Guatemala and we went to our interview with our parents and we were approved for a green card. And so we became documented as of, you know, the summer of uh, 1984. And it was really exciting. But 
the war was still raging in Guatemala. The economy was still so unstable and more and more people were leaving because of that. We had relatives that moved to Mexico. We had relatives that moved to Canada. We had friends that moved to, you know, parts of Canada as well. And so I think my parents just realized that there was no way that they could come back to Guatemala permanently as much as they wanted to, that now this was home. Right. And so, and so at that point they made a decision. I was maybe 13 when they finally said, you know, we're not going back. It's too, there's no way for us to build a life there that's mm-hmm. safe and secure for you all. And then was it that time that they also, cause I know you ended up moving to Florida. Yes. Um, so at that time they decided we're moving from LA to Florida and was that because of the crime in LA and just a safer well, place? Yeah. Yeah. So it, part, that was part of the reason, but, um, If there's one thing I want people to know is how radically your life changes when you go from being undocumented to documented. Yeah, do talk a little bit about that. That's a great point. When you're undocumented, all you think about is staying below the radar. How can I go unnoticed? How can I just survive? How can I, you know, keep my employer from finding out that I have this job on a fake social security card? (laughs) Because that's what most people do. And how can I just stay unnoticed. Mm -hmm. But when you become documented, all of a sudden you can come into the light. And instead of thinking about survival and hiding, you can think about things like music lessons for your kids. You can think Mm -hmm. about little league. You can think about, I'd like to buy a home. Um, You can think about more than just surviving. And so when my parents became documented, they're like, you know, it'd be really nice. We're going to stay in the U S we'd like to buy a home. But we lived in Southern California and to live in a, in a nicer neighborhood where they felt like the schools would be better and the neighborhood more secure was so expensive even at yes. that time. And so they came on vacation with my uncle, my uncle who, who married a U.S. citizen, and they went to Tampa on vacation and they okay. thought, they thought Florida was so beautiful because it was February. So okay. you can imagine. <laughs> so nice and still Florida. warm there. Yeah. My brother lives in St. Pete. Yeah. So I know. Yeah. That's what I'm yes. like, like. Yes. That's I where I there. Yeah. I grew up in like uh, St. Pete, about five miles from St. Petersburg. So Did you? that's crazy. Yes. Yeah. I just yeah. Uh, actually sent my husband a house in that area today. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I just want to be there. It's warm in the winter. So yes. that's what your parents felt like too. Like, hey, yeah. this is not a bad place. Okay. And they loved it, but it was other things that attracted them too that were one, you know, in LA, there was a lot of animosity toward immigrants, but in Florida, most of the people there who are not American, Cubans and Puerto Ricans, they were not illegal or, and never had been. Puerto Ricans are Americans, they're migrants, not immigrants, and Cubans were refugees from their homeland. So the minute they set foot right? And the um, U.S. soil, they became uh, refugees or asylees. And so um, the governor at that time had a Hispanic surname, (laughs) you know? And so my parents are like, this is a whole different world. And they really appreciated a lot of things about Florida, the way the Cuban community basically ran the city of Miami. And even though we lived far from there, and so a lot of things appealed to them. And so we moved to a suburb of Tampa near St. Petersburg. And, um, yeah, and I mean, that district had good schools, it was safe, it was, you know, suburban. Um, they just felt like this is the American dream. We are working hard and we're achieving success in this country. And, and so that's what they did. And, they, and the home was a modest home, sure. but it was so much more affordable to buy homes in Florida that it, it was very feasible for them. So that's such a good point, though, of how just drastically life changed from when you're documented or undocumented to when you're documented and you could like fully live a life that we all want for our kids. And I think that's what, again, what we forget when we're just talking like, well, it's black and white issue. They're the legal, they are legal or not, but to get to that legal status is so hard. And if you're wanting to protect your family, like we just have no idea when we've been born in this country and just think, have that such a closed mind of the whole um, issue that's there. So I just appreciate that perspective from you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know in Florida and you get more into this in your book that life became very hard because your mom, um, tragically, that was not a good part of your life because of what happened to your mom. Do you want to share just a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, 
So soon after we moved to Florida, my mom discovered that she had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she was a young woman. She was 37 years old, but um, it was a very sort of rare and aggressive kind of breast cancer. And she waited a few months also because she wanted, she discovered something was probably wrong right before we moved. And then we were in the midst of moving. And then it took her a few months to go to the Mm -hmm. doctor. I think also in the back of your mind, there's always a sense of, oh, it's probably nothing. I am probably fine. Right. But when she went, um, it led to, you know, a mastectomy and and then followed by another surgery a few days later, and then another surgery six months later, and then another surgery again, mm-hmm. until finally the doctor communicated to them that her cancer was terminal, that there was mm-hmm. there were too many um, tumors basically had just spread so quickly that they were not able to get it under control, and it didn't respond to the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy just made her sick, and she didn't yeah. get and it didn't really affect the cancer very much. And so... Yeah, so that was a really sad thing because I think she finally felt like, oh, we finally have some right. stability. We have. She wasn't even able to apply for citizenship. You know, mm-hmm. we would only been um, by the time she died, we'd just been citizens about four years. We've been residents about four years, and you have to be a, a resident with a green card for five years before, before you can you- apply for citizenship. So, oh, so how old were you then when she passed? So I was 17 when oh, she died. Oh gosh, that's hard. Yeah. And how, how did your faith get you through all that? Like, that's just a really hard, like the loneliness, the before you finally, you know, became documented, just all of that. And then that tragedy to occur that your mom's taken. I mean, what role did faith and your relationship with the Lord play during that time of your life? You know, it was really a hard season. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to note too that people who live on the margins of society who are struggling to survive, we don't sit around wondering why does this, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's not, we don't have a space for that when you're trying to survive yeah. uh, to ask these questions about God. And mostly most of us who live under those kind of conditions, we're grateful that we love and serve a God who has known suffering you know, the Jesus that's on the cross and that um, asks why he's being forsaken. And so it wasn't that exactly for me in terms of asking God why, but it was such a, a difficult loss because one, so there's a lot of patriarchy in Guatemala and including in my family. So my mom ran the household and all of a sudden we lost the stability of her presence, this person who ran our household. And my dad my dad's a lot like me. He doesn't have a lot of emotional resilience. And for him, it was really difficult. Uh, he became really depressed and just really lost in his grief. And so this was a really difficult period. And I went away to college right after this because one of the things that happened is in Guatemala, the expectation would have been that I would stay home as the oldest daughter and I would stay home until my little sister reached 18 and went away to college. And that would have been six years because my little sister is six years younger than me. Wow. But one, I had never seen that in the U.S. <laughs> ever. Yeah. I had never <laughs> seen that. And, you know, my grandma, and to some extent, I think my dad expected this from me, my aunts, and I couldn't have done that. I didn't have the emotional resources to do that. But also, I did not want to do that. I did not understand why I should sacrifice my life for, you know, six years, which when you're 18, six years seems like an eternity. Uh, Yes. Um, Yes. Now it's like nothing. But (laughs) back then, it was such a difficult thing. And so there was a little rupture within my family, too, particularly with my grandmother, who just felt like I was really selfish. But what I didn't understand is this would have been completely normal in Guatemala. And she still lived under that sense of communal responsibility, Mm -hmm. even though she'd been in the United States, you know, since, you know, her late 40s, she still was Guatemalan in her thinking and in her expectations of the world. And so she became really disappointed and upset with me over that. We had a rupture in our relationship that we never really repaired, which was very, very sad to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just a lot on you. And I go back to where you, you said in some ways I belong in both places, but in other ways I did not belong in either one. It's like you had your foot again in both cultures trying to be 
the strong, godly woman, but yet trying to still be um, what the culture in your home country said. Like, I can just imagine the tension that you must have felt during that time. Yeah. When, did, when did you feel the Lord calling you? And maybe you always did, because like we started off, you said you, you're an immigrant advocate and you work for, for world, world Relief. Did you know that you were always going to be um, involved in this area and be an advocate for others with similar stories? No, um, <laughs> I no? didn't. Okay. I, in <laughs> fact, you know, part of the narrative that is pushed consciously and unconsciously on immigrants is assimilate, right? Assimilate. Yes, yes. Um, and so that's what I always felt was my goal is mm-hmm. to just assimilate as much as possible and sort of leave the immigrant past behind. And that's what I worked toward. And in fact, as I got older and older, became a U.S. citizen, I just lost touch with um, my immigrant neighbors. And I didn't even know anyone who was undocumented, I would say, okay. you know, by the time I was 25. And so it wasn't until later when I went to seminary and I moved to Los Angeles. So I ended up coming back to Los Angeles as an adult to go to okay. seminary. And I went to Fuller and Fuller Seminary just happens to be very social justice minded. It's an evangelical seminary, okay, but it's also very progressive in that sense. And, you know, one of the first classes I took was urban mission. I was really glad that professor, her name is uh, Dr. Jude Tiersma Watson. She endorsed my book and I was really glad because I remember sitting in her class and she had Alexia Salvatierra, who's this paragon, this amazing woman uh, who is an immigration advocate and has been for decades and is very involved in organizing. And she said, she came to our class to present on immigration. And I said, well, you know, I've read this book and it says that we don't need immigrants anymore, that they're burdensome to the economy. And I just kind of said that. And I'm, I'm sure she must have thought, this woman is so weird. She must be so self-hating. She's a brown Latina, and she's telling me immigrants aren't needed. That's and, right. You share that in your book, too. Yes. I, and I was like, whoa, she believes that. Like, you believe that. That's what you were yeah. taught in America? And you're like, oh, so you can see how I, like, yeah. being, like how we fall into what we hear and are told. So you yes. fell into that, too. Okay, so Absolutely. you said that. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of compassion for people who just hear that and believe it because yeah. that was me, too. And so, yeah, that was completely my situation, and I, um, and that's what I thought. And it wasn't until I went to Fuller and I once again had connections to immigrant neighbors and got to learn about things that affect them, and I had more conversations with my dad and got to learn more about these things that I actually was made aware of oh, no, this is my community. It's not the immigrant community. These are my neighbors. This is yeah. me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, and, and that's yeah, that's you, how I became. Well, yeah, and that's what you say in your book. That I, You said knowing names and stories activates our compassion. And that was powerful to me because it's like, yes, that's why, I mean, we could all sit in the dark and listen to what we hear on the news and, oh, they need to just go to sleep. But it's like, golly, as Christians, we're called to do so much more than that. And we are called yes. to know these stories and these names and these spaces. Um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. What, I know you talk about the end of the book, but just, I guess, and then you can't do it in a nutshell, but what do, you, what do you think should be the response of the church? Because I think we have a huge role to play in this. Yes. Well, I think the church, for one, needs to recognize that immigration is a biblical issue because it deals with people, and people yes. are image bearers of God. Yes. Any issue that deals with people is automatically a biblical issue that Christians must care about because of that alone. But two, what the church needs to know is that, the, you know, there seems to be a misunderstanding that Romans 13 is the only thing that's mentioned in the Bible regarding laws, immigration laws or any laws, when in fact the Bible speaks so frequently and powerfully to immigration that the Bible speaks to this clearly and directly. And I I don't say that word clearly lightly when it comes to the Bible, because I realize people abuse that. But when it comes to immigration, it's actually true. And that's why in my book, I want people to see through that lens. I want people to recognize these stories because we've been taught the Bible from the perspective of dominant white culture. And I don't say that that, it's, that white people are bad. I don't think that, or that the dominant culture is bad. Um, 
what but I'm no, saying. No, I agree is with that, you. Yeah, that's yeah. how we've been taught. White America has been right. taught that exactly. I know what you're saying. So go go on. I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. So we've been taught from that perspective, and because of that, I think people don't recognize that the Bible was written by and given to people on the margins of society. Yes. Think of the community that Jesus was born to. Not only were his parents poor, not only were his parents uneducated, but they lived in a conquered and subjugated land. Yes. The Roman Empire was in control of their land. So they were marginalized people in every way. As a matter of fact, I was reading recently a book about Rome and their encounters with the Jewish people and how they thought they were lazy because they observed Sabbath. And in the ancient world, everybody worked seven days. So that these people were so weird because they obeyed their God and only worked six days. And so, yeah, that's, that's the history of the Bible. And so there's a, a critical component that we miss when we don't read the Bible in community with people on the margins. Yes. And so this is one of the reasons that, you know, now, I, you know, I live in Baltimore. I go to an African-American church because I want to hear the Bible from the margins yeah. because that's the way it was intended. And so I invited people to see the Bible through my eyes, to see the story of Ruth, not as a story just about Boaz or just about loyalty, but as a story of immigrants trying to survive. I wanted them to see Joseph as a foreigner in Egypt who is vulnerable to abuse and exploitation. I yeah. wanted them. And you do see. an amazing yeah. job at that. You really do. I mean, it's like that. And um, if Christians, we can start to change just our lens on the Bible. That's a, that's a start. So then what are other, I know, what are some other like just action steps if you want to get involved? Like you said, we can change things. So I'm sure some people are like, well, how, like what would I even do to change anything? Yeah. So, so yeah, what are some tangible steps. I think that's great. So one, I encourage people to examine their views of immigration and they don't have to do this with anyone. They could do this alone in God's presence, being honest in the presence of the Holy Spirit and just examine where do I get my views from immigration? Is Are my views really informed by the Bible or is it my social group, the media I consume? Is it my church that I go to? Or is it really informed by the things that God teaches in the Bible? Yeah. And I think that's a critical question for everyone. And then the second, I said, I, we need to be in community with our neighbors. And immigrants are your neighbors. Yeah. There's, <laughs> they're your children's teachers. They're in your workplaces, in your churches. It's not like it's hard to find, you know, we're right. 13% of the population. So we're around. And so we need to be in community. And what I mean when I say community is I mean a mutuality. It's not just, oh, you know, I want to get to know so-and-so in my church who's from X country and I invite right. them to my house. But it's being open to that mutuality. Oh, they're going to invite you to their house too. Right. <laughs> it's not finding that token right. immigrant friend or black African-American. Yeah. No, it is right. like you just said, community. Yeah, it's um, community. And yeah. we're, we're not objects of pity or charity, but we're human beings and we're your neighbors. Yes. Um, and then really read the Bible. I think one of the things that's really hard in the church is that often people want to see diversity, but they really don't want true inclusion because true mm -hmm. inclusion would mean listening to people who are different and considering their perspective or their lens on the scriptures, they have so much to teach us. You know, in my church, um, we have a lot of conversations about things, but I remember not being aware of something critical in my church. I was having a conversation with an African-American uh, woman in my church who's very elderly. She's in her 90s, and we were talking about the story of Joseph in Egypt. And she said, you know, the story of Joseph always reminds me of Emmett Till. And I thought, wow, I have never heard that before, but there's so many parallels. Emmett Till, you know, for those who don't know, was a young black man who was falsely accused of whistling at a white mm -hmm. woman, and then he was lynched, and mm -hmm. he was 14 years old. And in fact, the, the parallels with Joseph's story of being a young man, being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and being thrown in prison for years and years and forgotten by people for a crime he didn't commit. And I thought, this is so powerful. Yeah. 
I never saw this in this story until I read the Bible with African-American women. And so I encourage people not just to be in community, but to really listen, to learn at the feet of, read the Bible together. Um, And then finally, I, I encourage people to advocate, and that doesn't mean moving to D.C. (laughs) and becoming a (laughs) lobbyist for immigration. It means being willing to speak up to their friends and their family. And, you know, immigration Mm. is an issue. I I can think of lots of issues in my life where I've shifted what I thought about them. It took time and it took the work of the Holy Spirit. And there was a variety of factors that influenced that decision. It was a process. So we have to be patient with people, right? Paul says that love is patient. So we have to be patient with people as they're learning and growing. And so I have, I offer that to people who are not, don't share the same views that I do on immigration, but I also don't allow them to disparage the image of God in immigrants. I don't allow them to say awful things about immigrants. Right. But I do give them space to talk about the issue and I try to make myself available as a resource. And I do speak up if they say yeah. something disparaging and wrong about people. We can disagree on the issue, but, we, but we're not going to attack anyone's yeah. humanity. Yeah. With that, with you being an immigrant, an advocate for immigrants, I mean, how are you processing and dealing with this administration now of like, you know, and so many Americans are like, build the wall. Like, like how are you handling that? I mean, it's really hard because I think, you know, when I think about the border and I have been, I was recently at the border in fact. Yeah, and if if you're willing, I want to talk about that a little bit too. So let's talk about the climate right now, how you're dealing with all of this, and then we'll talk about some stories at the border. But okay, so yeah, go back to this, how you're handling what's going on now. So it's really, really hard because when I think about the border, I don't think about a line with a wall and barbed wire and drones. I think about communities mm-hmm. that live on both sides of that invisible line. Yeah. And I think about people who've been there historically, you know, for generations and generations and have and are, uh, are truly, you know, neighbors along that invisible line. And I really feel like they should be making decisions about what this line needs to look like rather than random people who live 2,000 miles away. But for me, I think the language that's really painful is when it's dehumanizing, when it's infestation or they're like animals or that language is so difficult because it's dehumanizing. And I think the other thing that's hard is some language is humanizing, but actually says my people are more important and more worthy of life and dignity and well-being than your people. Yeah. And I think that is another message that is very painful to hear. And yeah, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, you know, Christianity Today reached out to me uh, about a month ago to write a lament. I had no problem sitting. I wrote that in one evening mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I have so much, it's, it's, it's so much a practice in my life right now of God where are you? Yeah. Your people are suffering. How long, oh Lord? Are you going to forget us forever? Are you going to hide your face from us? How long are we going to bear this pain in our souls? And so it's really difficult that immigrants have become scapegoated. They're our neighbors, but they've become scapegoats for this administration, for everything that's wrong. And, you know, I sympathize with people who are in economically tough situations. I do, but we can't blame immigrants for that. The cause of that is really globalization, the way that jobs have moved overseas, jobs have disappeared due to technology and, you know, coal is not not available once like the way it was needed. And I, that's very sad to me. And I do think we need to help people transition into different kinds of ways to make a living, but Right now, immigrants have just become a scapegoat, and it's not just in the U.S., it's in Canada, it's in Western Europe, and a lot of these places who, you know, just really don't want to receive refugees and asylees and immigrants. And so, yeah, I find it deeply painful. I think it's a cause of lament for the whole church, not, not just for immigrants. And the fact that this rhetoric is what led to the El Paso shooting, or at least was a contributing factor, yes. the language that that shooter used yes. mirrors a lot of what 
the current president says. And it's really hard to hear our communities being targeted. And, you know, to me, what's sad is how the fact that Mexicans and Native Americans have lived in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California forever. Yes, yes. The border moved on them. They yeah. didn't, you know, they didn't move so, there. The border moved. <laughs> that's why I could, I, like I said, I could talk to you all day because there are so many myths and we're so uneducated. And if all you're listening to is the rhetoric from the president and the White yeah. House right now, you are just, you're no, you're just learning like just a little pinch of really what's going on. Um, and that's why I encourage people to just get educated. Like I said, World Vision, uh, or world, excuse me, World Relief, they have some good resources and Q&As, your book. I mean, as Christians, yes, we need to read the Bible and see it through that lens, but we also need to get educated on what are the facts and, um, yes. yeah, and hearing the story. So if you can tell us, because I know we have to wrap up here, and I'm sure, so you were at the border just recently. Were you, um, what kind of work were you doing there? So I went uh, with a group from the Matthew 25 network. Okay. And uh, that woman that I mentioned earlier, Alexis Salvatierra, is one of the leaders of that group. And so we had uh, a group of young um, Latinx leaders take us over the border, and we went to visit a shelter. Uh, we visited, and we met with pastors. So I will tell you that this visit, I'm glad we're ending on this, was so heartening. It was like water to my parched soul. Mm. It was so good. And I know we hear so many negative things about the border communities. And there are, there are a lot of hard things that are happening, but also God is present because God is always present wherever there are people who are marginalized, wherever people are suffering, Mm. God is there. So we met with these Mexican church leaders. Some were Protestant, some were Catholic, and they are united in caring for and loving the asylum seekers that have arrived in Mexico. I went to the shelter, but I have to tell you, I don't know what I expected. I think I expected something so awful, but it was so dignifying. It was oh. this clean place it was all for people who've been deported so if you've been deported you can't come back ever okay and so you have to build your life now on the other side okay uh and so this shelter had therapy it had job services social workers it had medical service social workers it had people helping you find housing i was so heartened and the food was fresh and clean so they you know they don't feed the people's hair like packaged foods they help them transition out after 45 days so why is that so sorry to interrupt you but why is that different than some things like i've read about how awful the conditions are was this set up by the church is that why it was gotcha okay okay that makes that makes you see why okay yeah and it was on the mexico side so it wasn't a, a detention center it was a shelter okay Gotcha. And so they receive people who come and they help them transition back into the community within 45 days. Unless, of course, there's a, there's a need, a mental health need or a physical health need. And so it was so heartening to be there and just to see the way the church is responding. But also, you know, the, the pastors that we met with presented this statement to us that they crafted as pastors who live on the, on the you know, uh, Tijuana side of the um of the border and they crafted this statement about God was an immigrant. Jesus was a refugee and we're going to care for, and it was a very thought out and very theologically sound statement. And they have built housing so that immigrants can stay there permanently. Cause you know, for example, Haitian immigrants often came to Mexico and came through and asked for the temporary protected status here in the U S but, under President Trump, that status ended. So they no longer have any option. So many of them are opting to stay. So they built housing for them. Wow. Like a little Haiti. There's like a little Honduras. And so I was so heartened. There, Of course, there are still needs. And of course, there are still hardships. But I, I was so encouraged by this visit because it, it just affirmed to me a fundamental truth about being a Christian in that that is that God is at work in things that I don't see or understand. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. And what is possible is if it, as a church, if we come together mm-hmm. and focus on helping and not judging or putting up walls, um, that's very powerful. 
Yeah. And so tell me, we'll end on this note. Um, what I know your organization that you own, it's called Matthew 25. Would you mind telling where that comes from? I know where it comes from with that verse, but that's a, <laughs> yes. power, that's a powerful verse. And I think that would be a great one to end on. Yeah. Matthew 25 is where Jesus says, I was a stranger, an immigrant, and you welcomed me. I was in prison and you visited me. So they took the name of their organization from that passage because they believe strongly that, and the scripture of course affirms that, that when we care for and welcome and receive immigrants, we are receiving Christ Mm -hmm. himself. Yes. Amen. Absolutely. And that's, um, gosh, I appreciate your voice and your um, just in story and enlightening us and all of this. Um, Like I said, I think everybody needs to read your book, The God Who Sees, and we will link that up with the show notes. And tell me where else that, tell us where else you can be found. Facebook, all of that stuff. Instagram. (laughs) I'm on Facebook and I'm also on Instagram and Twitter where you can follow me. And my handle is at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. Okay. And you have a website also um, that we'll put a link to. And then, like I said earlier, we will put a link to World Relief. And then um, if you can get to me, we might link up some other um, resources that we could become more educated if we want to or get involved in that. So again, Karen, thank you so much. I just appreciate you and your work and your story. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. And I just so appreciate the ability to, to just share and talk about these things. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I cannot encourage you enough to read Karen's book. It truly was one of the most impactful books I've read lately. It just opened my eyes to the true plight of the immigrant. This is not a black and white issue. And as Christians, we have a part to play in loving our neighbors. More information and where to find Karen and her book can be found on the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. Also, if you like the show and listen regularly, can you please rate and review it? The more ratings and review a show has, the easier it is for people to find the show that may not otherwise have heard of it.